But if you, if you guys want to turn to Isaiah 36, join me there. I'm going to read Isaiah 36 to you, but we are going to get into 37. So why don't we stand up together? I'll try to read fast. If you can't stand up, it's okay. Now there's a lot of um, Aramaic Chaldean names in the text, which I'm certain I'm not pronouncing them correctly. So if, just don't judge me, okay? All right. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool and the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power of war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Jude in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shibna, and Joah said to the Rebshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rebshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall? who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the Assyrian or the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? 
But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was do not answer him. Then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Father, thank you for your word. And the circumstances are unimaginable of what Jerusalem and Hezekiah face. And, uh, but, Lord, you have a way of intervening for the sake of your people. And, uh, but I think we have much to discuss before that. And I pray that uh, you would teach us uh, in the process. Lord, encourage our hearts. And, um, yeah, so, Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. The Rob Kishaw, if that's how you say his name. He can talk, can he? He can talk some trash. That's what he can talk. We'll come to that in a little bit. I needed to start out with, of course, the beginning here. And it says, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, does anybody have a better pronunciation of that? Works for you? <laughs> He'd probably be offended if he was sitting in the audience today. King of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So here in verse 1, Isaiah throws out a time stamp uh, and a name for us. The text says that we're in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. Um, how many of you know of the discrepancy uh, in the verse here? In Tucker, because we were talking about it beforehand. Rascal. <laughs> there is a discrepancy with the number here and those that we find in 2 Kings. Uh, which also records this whole narrative. Uh, when all the numbers uh, from 2 Kings and here are considered together, two things are apparent. Uh, an early scribal error was made and then preserved in the text when he was copying the numbers. And from the chronological records in 2 Kings, we know that it was actually the 24th year of Hezekiah's reign, which corresponds with 701 B.C., now, how do we account for that particular error? How do we do that? Um, now, when it came to uh, scribal errors in the Bible, uh, they were typically made, of course, in the Hebrew text when transcribing numbers and rare proper names. Okay? Because of the, the way ancient Hebrew numbers were written, it was really easy to uh, make mistakes in what is called the decade column of the number. Uh, and there's a few examples of it actually in the Old Testament. But thankfully, because of other numbers, because of other dates in the, the context and the chapters surrounding the error, uh, we can do the math and come up with the right numbers, the right dates. And such is the case with the error made here concerning the 14th year of Hezekiah. Um, now, when it came to transcribing, of course, it's not like uh, what we enjoy today, we put it into the copy machine, and it scans it, and then it kicks out an exact replica. Uh, no, this was all hand copies, and uh, it was on primitive forms of paper, papyri, sometimes animal skins. Um, <clears throat> animal skins were much more expensive. And then, of course, more primitive um, writing, uh, like the pen and things like that. And uh, so, <clears throat> how many of you guys have heard of George Lamza? He is the Aramaic scholar that gave to us the Aramaic translation of the Bible when the 
the whole uh, Armenian genocide was taking place, he was among the refugees that fled to America. And with him came a lot of ancient manuscripts, thankfully. He spared them from the libraries in uh, Armenia. In his introduction to the, um, the Aramaic translation of the Bible, it's called the Peshitta, he uh, talks about uh, scribal transmission and all of this. It's very interesting, the whole introduction there. But he talks about how when a scribe goes to roll up the scroll, if a gnat lands on it and it lands just in the right spot, it can look like the tittle that belongs above certain Hebrew letters. And that can affect uh, some of the things. When it comes to the ancient uh, form of numbers in the Hebrew, uh, a, the, the decade column could be smudged by a sweaty hand uh, or the slightest mis you know, mistake of the pen, and then things could be altered. Uh, just an accidental mark. Uh, very, very rare, uh, but it happens. And, and thankfully, later on in history, the Jews had... Um, basically developed a different way of writing Hebrew numbers, and uh, many of those problems went away. Um, let me, uh, one of my books here that I have, I just wanted to read a note to you from Gleason Archer. Uh, if you're interested, he writes this book called The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And there's a few other Bible difficulty books out there that are junk, uh, uh, but Archer's is very good. And I think that his notes in this particular area is appropriate because his specialty uh, was Semitic languages, uh, ancient Semitic languages. And uh, anyway, he has this comment, and he's talking about two different locations in the Old Testament where the, the decade um, uh, part of the numbers was, was a little messed up, but how the context uh, and the surrounding chapters fixes the number for you. In fact, there was one king that, uh, without correcting the numbers, he became a daddy when he was six years old. We need to fix that number. And, uh, and thankfully, there's enough data to do that. <clears throat> he says, the same was probably the case with the date of Sennacherib's invasion of Jude in 701 BC. This is stated in 2 Kings 18.13 to have occurred in the 14th year of Hezekiah, which implies that Hezekiah must have begun his reign in 715. Yet the other six references to Hezekiah's chronology in 2 Kings makes it clear that he was crowned as assistant king in 728 and became sole king in 725. Since Sennacherib did not become king in Assyria until 705, and the, the invasion occurred in the fourth year of his reign, the seven 101 date for the invasion is absolutely certain. Therefore, we are to understand the 14 in 2 Kings 18.13 as a miscopying of an original 24. The difference in the Hebrew notation would have been as follows. And then he gives the, uh, the numbers. And I'm going to put them on the screen for you in just a minute. He says, a blurred manuscript probably confused the scribe of Isaiah 36.1 who originated the error, and it may have been that the later scribe of 2 Kings 18 was so impressed by the number 14, with which he was familiar in the Isaiah text, that he decided to correct verse 13 to conform with it. So he, he read in Isaiah and he thought, oh, well, that must be the right one. So he went back to 2 Kings and fixed the 24 there to 14, okay? And then uh, Archer gives this honest comment. He says, at least this is the likeliest explanation 
that I know of. And so uh, this right here, whoops, right there. Can you see that? My ancient Hebrew is really good. I, of course, the Roger couldn't get the technology to transfer uh, his notes onto the computer. So anyway, I wrote it out, and uh, I must say it's pretty good. I could fool a, a real expert. Yeah. The hooks that you see that look like a shepherd's staff, kind of laying down above what looks like Roman numerals, uh, that makes up the decade column, okay? And that's where most of the scribal errors occur. And like I said, they're extremely rare, but they have happened. And um, the lower number uh, with the two hooks was uh, in the original that Isaiah wrote when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, equaling, of course, 24. And then somewhere down the line, a copyist made his error, and the next copyist adopted it, and then he preserved it for us that way. So thank you very much for that. Uh, and it was preserved in what we call the Masoretic Text, and that's where we get our translation of the Old Testament today. And, um, and as I said earlier, scribal errors, when they were made, they were made recording numbers and then rare proper names. And here's the, the real thing, the important thing, is that no uh, doctrine of Scripture has ever been compromised in any way. We have a few numbers. Uh, we have a few uh, rare proper names. But as far as the, the integrity of the Scriptures, nothing has, has, has suffered. Now, in the past, uh, skeptics uh, really tried to capitalize on this and make a big deal out of these discrepancies, these errors, and they tried to sow doubt uh, into, of course, the, the believers concerning the veracity and the integrity of Scripture. And then uh, after that, from their rhetoric, um, the Mormon church and then other cults, you know, they grabbed onto this so that they could support their doctrine that the Bible is true as far as it's translated or recorded correctly or, or accurately. Maybe you've heard Mormon missionaries say that to you. Um, I've heard it a million times. And skeptics have said that, uh, and you've probably heard this as well, that a document copied and translated thousands of times over centuries could not possibly be trusted. How many of you guys have heard that? I've heard that the transmission of the scriptures is like the telephone game. How many of you guys have heard of the telephone game? Oh, okay. And uh, you know that by the time the original saying has gone around the circle, uh, that it's, it's turned into something completely ludicrous. Uh, but the reason why that illustration doesn't work with the Bible is because the first person to make the comment wrote it down. And then they can go around the circle and then it's checked by the original. That's what the Bible is, is we have uh, ancient documents that demonstrate that, that copying has come down to us extremely accurate with, with very minor um, errors that have been made. And, uh, and oftentimes, the errors that are uh, communicated as um, a discrepancy or what we call variance in manuscripts is actually a difference in spelling. And, and so what some uh, dishonest people will do is they will say, well, look at all of these, these problems with the Bible, and, uh, and, and they're failing to mention that a, a large majority of them are just a difference in spelling a word. Now, how many words do we know of just in the last hundred years in English are spelled different today, but have identical meaning? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of dishonesty in uh, this whole game. Yeah, so insignificant are the errors that no serious scholar pays them any mind today uh, because the facts are all accounted for. Uninformed people or just uh, obnoxious people that love to make trouble, they sow dishonest claims about the Bible all the time. It's all over the internet. But the truth of the matter is uh, the, the, the apparent discrepancies are irrelevant and they have zero impact on the veracity of the scriptures themselves. And uh, so I remember that early on in my faith, as I was studying and all this, I would come across just a variation from one manuscript to the next. And I remember it would bother me and even keep me up at night. And then uh, the more I would research and study it, I would shrug my shoulders at it and go, oh, this isn't uh, what I thought because I'd probably read something uh, on the internet or I'd read something uh, in a, a skeptic's book. And, and what they do is they use all kinds of language to make it something that it's not. But when you look at the actual data, it's, it's really nothing at all. And uh, so now when I read about uh, discrepancies, I just go to the original and I look at the surrounding context and things like that, and it works itself out super fast. So, um, yeah, the original documents, um, as they were penned by the original author, so when Isaiah sat down to pen this document, it was without error. Okay? He, he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The copyist was not. And now there are some groups out there that believe in what we call the extreme uh, forms of the preservation of Scripture. Um, have you guys ever run into the, you know, the King James only uh, independent conservative Baptist? They believe in a doctrine of preservation that says even the copyists uh, basically fell under inspiration that they made no errors. Well, that's not historically accurate. It's not textually accurate. And, uh, and so it's our job to be honest about reality and then to, you know, unravel all of the data. Amen? And uh, so the scriptures have been preserved very well for us, but not perfectly in all of the various manuscripts that are out there. But now that we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts, we've brought them together and we've been able to uh, come to basically what is a flawless manuscript that is nearly identical to the original. And uh, so when you study uh, manuscript variants, you discover that there's not really much of a variant. And wherever there was a discrepancy, it's easily solved. It's kind of like, you know, if you, you look around this room and you see these sound panels, if I took one down, you would see a discrepancy. But would you know what belongs there? You would, wouldn't you? You would say there's a panel missing right there. And I know that they're square, and they're gray. That's how fixing most of the variants in the scriptures, the manuscripts are. Um, it's, it's, most of it is quite that, is, is, is that simple. Now, the real honest challenge that we face is actually understanding the text as the original author intended. You see the difference? So my conviction is that if we're going to spend our time, we need to spend our time wrestling with interpretation, wrestling with meaning, and uh, figuring out what the implications of it are for my life. Amen? Yeah. All right, so let's get back to the text. If you have any questions about, um, well, not my handwriting, uh, but the, the variant or the discrepancy, I'd love to chat with you. And if you need any resources on where to study it, uh, there's a number of good ones out there from great, great scholars. 
So, so it was actually in the 24th year of Hezekiah, corresponding with 701 BC. That's the year that uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, invaded the fortified cities of Judah, taking them. And really, the only one that is of any significance that's left standing is Jerusalem. So then the, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh. Now, real quick, this, this term, uh, scholars believe that originally it was the chief cupbearer of the Assyrian king, uh, used earlier. And then over time, the, that person had assumed another trusted position before the king. Your cupbearer is a trusted person. Amen? He needs to be. Uh, and then over time, he somehow secured uh, uh, some position in the military. And uh, that term then transferred over. That's, that's what uh, most scholars believe. So he sent the, the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's field. So apparently, uh, Sennacherib, he did not come to the party. He sends this representative before him to speak with Hezekiah or his delegates. Uh, in 2 Kings 18.17, there were two other delegates that came with the Rabshakeh, uh, but the Rabshakeh does all the speaking, so apparently Isaiah thought he was the only one worth mentioning the guy with the big mouth. And uh, it says that he was sent from Lachish. Uh, that is a fortified city in southwest Judah, uh, closer to the coast. It was a, um, a, it was a fortified city on the highway that led to Egypt. Okay? Now, that was a, a strategic victory of the Assyrians because it created this barrier between Judah and Egypt that would keep the Egyptians from coming north to the aid of, of Jerusalem. So uh, that's been disabled. So Sennacherib, he has uh, Jerusalem in a really bad way. They're outnumbered, they're outgunned, they're surrounded. And it says that the Rabshakeh stood by the aqueduct at the upper pool that was situated on the highway to the Fuller's field. Now, a Fuller was a professional clothing washer, and his field, of course, was where he would hang all of the clothing uh, Fullers were often those who washed uh, ceremonial garb for the priests in the temple. Now, the location here at the aqueduct, this isn't the first time that Isaiah has mentioned it for a similar purpose. This is the second time that it's come up. Isaiah had met King Ahaz in this same location in Isaiah 7 about the coming invasion of the Syrians, not to be confused with Assyria. Okay, Syria was Damascus, Assyrians were Nineveh. Also, the Syrians had joined with Samaria and they were coming south. It was a place where the king and his officials met to discuss issues of war. Uh, so Isaiah met Ahaz here and what his goal was, was to get Ahaz to trust in the Lord to be the one that would deliver him as opposed to the Assyrians. So three decades earlier, Ahaz had... Uh, been in negotiations with the Assyrians, who are now in uh, the troublemakers in Isaiah chapter 36, <laughs> to come and rescue him from the Syrians. And Isaiah was trying to talk him out of that and to get him to just trust the Lord. So this location then 
is interesting because it's, it's, a, it's a place of decision. Uh, who would Ahaz trust in? Would Ahaz trust in the Assyrians or would he trust in the Lord for deliverance? Well, sadly, Ahaz took all the silver and gold out of the temple and he paid the Assyrians to come and, uh, and defend him. And what they did was they took Damascus, the capital of Syria, and that ended the Syrian uh, little empire that they had. And, uh, and he took down the, the, those in Samaria. The problem didn't end there. Uh, when Ahaz visited the king of Assyria in Damascus, where they defeated them, he saw an altar there that he really liked. And so he had the priest uh, take all the measurements down. And then when he returned, he had it built for Ahaz before Ahaz returned. And then Ahaz desecrated the temple and worshipped false gods at this altar of his own making. Didn't go well. And now, some three decades later, the Assyrians who helped Judah against Syria, they're now at Jerusalem's doorstep, and they are threatening to destroy her. And we have this Assyrian delegate standing where Ahaz once stood. And it says, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So, of course, it's too risky to send Hezekiah out there to meet this man. And uh, so three trusted officials go out, and they're there at the aqueduct. And what we're having here at the aqueduct, once again, is a discussion about war, right? And Hezekiah, like his father, he's going to have to make a decision. He's going to have to. Would he trust the Lord, or would he call for the Egyptians to come to his rescue? What would he do? All right, we'll get to what he would do later. Now, rather than read the whole chapter to you again, uh, what I want to do is provide an outline of the threats, the arrogance of Assyria, and uh, because that's part of the point that will be brought out in the next chapter in regard to what God will do, okay? And if there's anything that God meets with humiliating resistance, it's arrogance, okay? So when the Rabshakeh comes, he is talking trash and he's sowing doubt in the people. And he says, what is your source of confidence? And he's, he's being sarcastic. He's ridiculing. He says, you're all talk and no action, verse 5. He says, Egypt will prove to be a detriment to you. And the Lord, Yahweh, will not help you. He says, you cannot man 2,000 of my horses. He says, make a deal. He says, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put men on them, riders. He says, with Egypt's help, you could not stop one of my captains. He says, Yahweh commissioned me to destroy you, verse 10, and you will eat and drink your own waste, verse 12. A little bit of trash talk. Now, you know, Jerusalem may not have had 2,000 riders to mount the horses that were offered, and even if they did, it would not be enough to resist the Assyrian army. It is too massive for them, okay? And it was true, uh, even with Egypt's help, uh, the Assyrian army was too great. They could not even come close to matching their numbers, uh, well less the kind of, of um, power that they had with them. The mention of Yahweh uh, calling the Assyrians... Um, to attack Jerusalem, 
That's kind of an interesting tactic. Of course, it's, it's, it's intended to embed fear in the hearts of the people. You know, not only that Yahweh had forsaken them, but they must have done something to cause Yahweh to turn on them. The idea was to sow the idea that God was apparently using Assyria to punish them. And therefore, if, God, if Yahweh was on Assyria's side, there was no way to stop them. There was no way to stop them. And then the idea behind the last comment was just to remind the people of Jerusalem of the kinds of things that happened when a city was held under siege beyond what their supplies could endure. Starvation, desperation, and then, of course, it leads to surrender. So he's saying, you have no hope. All hope is lost. He says, do not trust in Hezekiah. Do not trust in Yahweh. He says, no God has withstood the king of Assyria. No hope. Now, today, when we go to war with a foreign country, uh, we don't have in mind that we're battling the God of that country. But that's exactly what they thought in the ancient world. Uh, the gods of that nation were there to protect them. So if you go to battle with that country, uh, you're going to go to battle with their God, especially if that God uh, is still in favor of his people. Okay? And so there's this mention of there's no God that could stand against us. We laid them all waste, proving that we and our gods are superior to all of them. So we are an unstoppable force, is what he's saying. And uh, Jerusalem, you will just be the next victim to fall before us. And then you have, you, know, you have, of course, the words of the Rab Shakah. And then outside of Jerusalem, you have surrounding the city, uh, some 200,000 plus Assyrian soldiers. It's not looking well, okay? There were many good reasons to be worried, don't you think? Yeah, they're surrounded, outnumbered, outgunned. Egypt was useless. There's no other allies to help them. Jerusalem is completely alone, okay? Now, I think it's difficult to even imagine how scary this would be. I'm just trying to think about it just so that I can better understand some of the context, and I just have no way of identifying uh, with, you know, what it would be like to have an invading army surrounding me. It's just very intense. If they did all that the Assyrians demanded, uh, the people of Judah would be taken and scattered in foreign lands, just as the northern tribes had been. The women, of course, would be mistreated. Uh, capable men would be killed to eliminate any threat. Unspeakable things would happen to the children. Families would be separated. Many would be enslaved. And of course, many other people would die. It's just horrifying. If they agree to the terms, that's what happens. If they don't agree, they starve in the city, and then the city wall will eventually be breached, and they will be in no condition to survive, and they will just slaughter the people. There, there's, no, there's no positive way out of this. And all of Hezekiah's delegates, they're very aware of all this, and so they come to their king with their clothing torn. So we're at that place of decision. Again, what would Hezekiah do? What do you do in a situation like this? Would he do what his father did? Would he ignore the Lord, look for deliverance elsewhere, and then just completely forsake the Lord? Or what would he do? Um, what do you do when trials and troubles come your way? Do you, do you doubt God's promises? 
Do you question his character? Do you ignore his word? Do you seek relief elsewhere? Uh, Do you acquire counsel contrary to the word of God? Or what do you do? We'll come back to that. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. That's a good start, by the way. Yeah. So, of course, he's, he's grieved by the terms brought and all that this means, the whole situation. But what he does is he immediately goes to the temple and he presents himself to the Lord. What do you think that he did there? I think it's pretty easy to figure out, isn't it? He went there desperately crying out to the Lord. And then following that, he then sends a delegate, uh, delegates rather, to Isaiah the prophet to seek the Lord and to pray with him for the, deliver- the deliverance of Jerusalem. Now, I think the order is important. Uh, he didn't go to Isaiah first. He went to the Lord. But let me back up. Rather than doing what his father did under very similar circumstances and seek help from the ungodly, Hezekiah immediately went to the Lord himself. That's what he did first. And then he sent his delegation to Isaiah. Now for us in spiritual matters and more matters than we think in the Christian life are spiritual than non. Okay? Uh, we can get down to things like you know, fixing our, our flat tire is, is not so spiritual. But how you behave in the process of all that is a spiritual matter. Amen? Yeah. But in spiritual matters, many Christians will skip the first step, which is by far the most important step, if we can call it that. And instead of seeking the Lord, some will immediately go to another believer. Okay? And sadly, many will seek out the ungodly. But seeking help from the ungodly is not really an option for us when spiritual matters are at hand, okay? Because the Lord has something in those situations, uh, it's something definitive to say about it in his word, uh, which is not what the ungodly have in mind. Now, I've, I've received some pretty good worldly wisdom from the ungodly, but that wisdom doesn't come with the kind of motive that we ought to have in a course of action, and it's certainly not with the motive to glorify God. Amen? It's just not there. Now, of course, going to another believer is better than running to the ungodly, but the cart is still in front of the horse. It really is, okay? Uh, We have both the privilege and the responsibility to go to the Lord first, and we do that by prayer, and we do it by consulting the Word. A pastor friend of mine, when people come to him for counsel, he, depending on what it is, he'll tell them, uh, what I'd like you to do is fast and pray and read your Bible for three days, and then let's get back together. Because what he, do, he doesn't want to do is get in the way of this person meeting with God and God doing a work in their heart and, and everything else. And I think it, in certain circumstances, that's very wise. The author of Hebrews says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, in, in the military, my commander always communicated to his soldiers that he had an open-door policy. But what he really meant is you better go to your, your, your squad leader who then has to go to your, uh, your platoon sergeant, to the platoon leader, and then so forth up the chain of command. He didn't really have an open-door policy. But God really does have an open-door policy with all of his people, right? Yeah. And there's a great blessing for those who 
skip the other believer, and especially for those who skip the ungodly, and just go directly to the Lord for help, and they cry out to him. I mean, how much better to hear directly from the Lord through answered prayer or from his word? How much better to hear from him directly than through someone else? I I think too often, prematurely, we consult what we might call a mediator, another believer, to consult the Lord for us or tell us what the word of God says about our situation. We, We do that. But this only robs us of the joy and of the reward of fellowship with Christ in the context of our needs. Okay, and now that doesn't mean that there isn't a time to consult a trusted believer, especially, I would say, in complicated matters. But going to the Lord should be our first order of business. And you know, also, if someone comes to us in need, I mean, we want to be sensitive to their situation, but we don't want to rob them of the blessing of hearing from the Lord themselves or discovering his will for themselves in the word of God. You know, and besides, when someone comes to us, what is our responsibility ultimately? Take them to Jesus. We want to point them to Christ and to his word because we want them to become dependent on him and not upon us. Amen. And, and I think that we should be uh, wise in our dealings with some people and, and just kind of help redirect them, their attention, their focus on Christ and his word. Yeah. They need to receive from him. And it's so much better. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets uh, spoke for God when it came to new revelation. But even in the Old Testament, every individual had the right and the responsibility to go to the Lord themselves. Now, in the context of the church, in the New Testament era, there's, there's no prophet and there's no need for one. Okay, we, we have the entirety of God's word and we have who? We have Christ manifest to us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I won't leave you orphans. Amen. So we have the spirit to lead us. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. If you're a believer, you're led by the spirit of God. So we should consult him. We must seek him. Hebrews 11.6 says that he rewards those who seek him diligently. I want that reward. I want to hear God in my troubles. I want to discover in his word how it applies to the situation that I'm in, don't you? I want the Spirit to reveal that to me. And when the Spirit provides conviction with the knowledge, better things happen anyway, rather than just somebody telling me, must go to him. And so here in the text, we have Hezekiah in the temple of God, and that's his immediate response when he hears this stuff that has come from the Rabshakeh. It says, then... After he's been in the temple, he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna, Shebna, the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, spending time with the Lord, and then he sends the delegation. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, 
Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now, how bold is that? (laughs) Don't be afraid. The idea is ignore what you see outside the wall of the city. Ignore the reputation of the Assyrians, all of the nations and kings that they have brought to the ground. Just, I want you to not consider any of that. And, And apparently, Isaiah was not afraid. When you read the accounts of Isaiah in the narrative of 2 Kings and here, you just see that he's cool as a cat, okay? He's, he's not afraid because he's already heard from the Lord and he knew what the Lord intended to do, okay? But still, the soldiers surrounded the city, right? But to Isaiah, the word of the Lord was as good as reality. He was a real man of faith and a promise of the Lord was as good as fulfilled, as it should be for us. All of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes, and they are amen. So we should look at the promises as though they were fulfilled as we wait for them to be fulfilled. His word is as good as reality. We can always take the word of God to the bank. It should be trusted without reservation. God had not yet fulfilled this particular word, but Isaiah knew that he would. He says, behold, I will put a spirit in him, that is, to the king, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. We'll come back to that at the end of the chapter. Then Rabshakeh, now we've transitioned here. It says, then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Okay, so apparently assaulting Jerusalem was no rush, okay? The Rabshakeh had initially come to threaten and intimidate them, to uh, allow them to consider the terms, which was really death or dispersion. And he left troops at Jerusalem, and he, turned to, he returned to Lachish, that's the highway stronghold uh, that had been abandoned by the king in order to try to take another fortified city that was further south on the coast toward Egypt. And the king heard concerning, now my Ethiopian is terrible, okay? This particular king, Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, he was coming out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. So what's happening is there's an issue now. There is threat that armies are coming from the south, okay? But apparently they're way far out. A scout has probably informed him. And so what he does is he sends the rock. Uh, the Rabshaka back to Jerusalem to get this whole ball rolling because the last thing they want to do is be divided in what they're doing as far as fighting. Okay, even if you have this, this massive army. So he sends back to continue on this discussion with Hezekiah's guys. And the king tells him, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you saying Jerusalem should not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Now earlier, what did the Rabshakeh say about Yahweh? He said that Yahweh has commissioned us to attack you. And now they're saying, don't let Yahweh deceive you. Which is it? Which is it? Okay. It's pretty interesting. He says, look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezif and the people of Eden who are in Telazar? 
Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? All he's trying to do is demonstrate that, look, Yahweh cannot help you. No other God has helped the other nations. I've defeated all of them. I've put these kings down. How is your God going to do any better than these? So now we have a, the threat comes in a second wave. What does Hezekiah do with this? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread the letter before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. So again, immediately back to the temple and he begins to pray. He recognizes that Yahweh, the God of Israel, who dwells between the cherubim, he's the only God. He's the creator, verse 16. And he beseeches God to listen to how the Assyrian king is blaspheming him. He's saying you're a God of dishonesty a God of deception. And he also calls God a wimp. He says, you can't stop me. I've destroyed all these other gods. What is your God against me? And then Hezekiah talks about all of the king of Assyria's military accomplishments. Not to intimidate God, but to demonstrate that Sennacherib does not know what he's now getting himself into. You see, his past accomplishments have made him overconfident. He thought by defeating those other nations and kings that he was defeating their gods. But he says those gods were only idols. They're the works of men's hands. They're nothing. They're just wood, silver, and gold that cannot save. So he's saying that Sennacherib's achievements are far less amazing than he thinks because now that he's at Jerusalem, at Jerusalem he's facing a real God. He hasn't come against God yet. And so Hezekiah concludes by beseeching God to glorify himself among the nations by saying, by saving rather his people from the greatest army at that time in the world. And he says, do this so that the kingdoms of the world will know that the God of Israel is Yahweh. That is, that he is the eternal God and there's none but him. Do this to demonstrate to the world who you are. Notice that in Hezekiah's prayer here, he doesn't ask for military strength in order to fight the Assyrians. He just says, Lord, if basically, if you don't do this, it just can't happen. The army is way too massive. It's too much. So will you just, will you just save us? So what will God do? Well, I would tell you, but we're out of time. So why don't you stand up and we'll pray. But you guys have your Bibles.